What's up, everybody? Nigel Marcellus here. Welcome to the interview series with Nigel Marcellus. Um, this is an interview series where really just having candid conversations of different people's stories, um, journeys, experiences in life. And, you know, just to kind of put this out there, I want to say, like, based on having these conversations, I want them to be very honest, very open and vulnerable. So it comes with that a lot of times is people speaking on experiences that are positive and some that are also negative. So like for everybody listening, I'm always going to give like a trigger warning, especially in the description. But I just want to put that out there for anybody who's listening that we plan on getting deep. We plan on having real conversations about real life things. So um, there's going to be times where things might get a little heavy. So never feel the need to um, tap in or listen. Or if you got to take a break, feel free to. But I think the beauty of just life and people is being able to really have these conversations. So I'm so excited. And today, 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 we have Amber Underwood. She is, before I even let her speak, let her talk about herself. She is so dope, so amazing. I did this like crazy deep dive on her story, her journey, who she is. And one of her homies, Jasmine, who's also my homie, connected us. So shout out to you, Jazz. But Amber, I'm so happy, so thankful to have you here. Appreciate you so much. No, thank you for having me. And yeah, shout out to Jasmine. I actually saw this post the other day. It says character will take you further than anything else. And so it just make, makes me feel good that like, not just my friend, but like someone is really speaking to the character that I do possess. And I do try to, you know, keep inside of me, despite what life has thrown at me. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So Amber, for the people who don't know, who is Amber Underwood? How would you introduce <laughs> yourself to somebody? Like, you're in a room, somebody just like, who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Yeah, so I'd like to think that I am the greatest expression of believing big, like healing and becoming as a, a gift really given to humanity for the sake of everyone else becoming their greatest selves. Outside of that, there are the things that I do that, you know, I learned over time, what you do is not who you are. It's just an asset to who you are. Um, so some of the things that I do do, I'm a mental health therapist in the school system. I work with middle schoolers and high schoolers. I became an author last year, which naturally made me a speaker, podcaster, just all the things, and then a woman in business. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Okay. Okay. So before we like jump into your story, one thing that you just said, as far as um, it's not about really like what you do, like what you do isn't who you are. Can you describe yeah. uh, define that? Because I think a lot of people that went over a lot of people's heads. And right there, you're already spitting bars. You're already giving people the quality value that they need to hear. So please explain that for the people. Let me just say your energy is like crazy, crazy good. <laughs> don't lose that. But um, yeah, I think it's really by our experiences. So I learned from my own experiences that I was attaching my identity to the accolades and just to the accomplishments in life. And when those things were not working out, um, when I fell, because those things fell, I had no idea who I was. And so it was in losing myself that I found myself and finding myself required me to see like, apart from the degree, apart from the money, like 
those things will fade. Like they won't be here forever. So will you be able to stand 10 toes down if they aren't here? So that's why I tell people like, I'm the greatest expression of believing big and healing and doing the work. Because when you do those things, these other things just really become naturally things that are added to you, things that you're good at, but they're really not who you are. So I'm a big stickler for like just identity and really being rooted in your God-ordained identity, whatever that may be. Okay. So speaking of identity, so let's let's get into it, right? So you have an incredibly powerful story and you have a story, a testimony of really about healing. Um, and I'm wondering if first we could like take people back to kind of like where you're from, how you came up, and then how you kind of got into your um, healing journey. Yeah, for sure. So I am from Birmingham, Alabama, um, specifically Alabaster, Alabama, born and raised. Grew up in the home of a single mother, three sisters, um, a total of six siblings. My dad was a Rolling Stone, um, but my dad wasn't, he wasn't really present. And old Amber would spend most of her time just really beating him up because of what he couldn't do. And then really beating my mom up for what she was only able to do, which at the time I thought wasn't enough. But again, the healing journey we'll talk about, I later learned that like they really just did the best they could with what they had. Um, but again, just grew up with a single mother. If we didn't beat the streetlights home, we got our butts beat. We didn't make curfew. We got our butts beat. My last whooping was literally at 18 years old. And it was because I snatched my phone out of my mother's hands in the church in front of all the church mothers. <laughs> and I definitely paid for it when I got home. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my mother, in essence, she doesn't play. Um, but just being born and raised in that type of environment, um, it naturally made me and my sister strong, independent Black women. And I know that we used to hear that all the time. Like, well, I'll say for myself, I used to like cling to that. Like I'm a strong, independent Black woman. I don't need no man, all this other stuff. And it was because of the environment that I came from. But again, after doing my work, like that's just a facade, like to hide all the pain and all the trauma that you've experienced. So again, I'm, I'm leading off into the healing, but we'll get there in a second. Um, but yeah, and so my mother, because she was a lunchroom worker in the school system, me and my sisters were able to go to any school in the county. And so my mother wanting us to have what she didn't have, she allowed us to go to the predominantly white school. Going to the predominantly white school came with its educational benefits, but it didn't come with its cultural benefits um, that we needed. So we went to the predominantly white school. But we lived on the side of the tracks with like low income, like I lived straight across the street from the projects. We grew up on food stamps. We grew up on filling buckets and pots with um, water because the water didn't work. The hot water didn't work. So we had to like boil everything. Yeah. Our winters were spent close together in cover because we didn't have the heater. So I was living in an environment that was, I'm going to say impoverished mentally because I don't think that. I think poverty, yes, is like an experience we experienced tangibly, but it starts in the mind. Um, so we were living a impoverished life mentally, but then I would go to school and I'd be surrounded by these white people who were, at the time I thought were good for me and good people, which I mean, from a child's perspective, they were, but as you get older, you like learn the truth. But being in both of those environments caused me to have a shaken identity because here in the white world, I'm still black. And then here in the black world, I'm too proper. I'm too white. Mm -hmm. So it's like 
being in the middle of two places and just trying to figure out who you are. Um, and so I spent K through ninth grade going to the predominantly white school. And then my 10th grade year, I decided, hey, like, let's go to the school that I already like the zone that I'm already zoned for. So I went there and like I said, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood didn't like me um, because for whatever reasons, they felt like me and my sisters thought we were better than them, even though we were living just like them. Um, so I thought going to this school was going to be very hard for me, um, but somehow it wasn't. I got there and somehow ended up winning Best Dressed, um, made homecoming court, like just an overall people person that they ended up loving. But going into my senior year of high school, I lost my best friend of 12 years at the time and losing her really like that. I would say that's where it all started, but I didn't know that that's where it started um, because as a result of her death, I became a high functioning depressant. So I started like overloading myself into work, um, thinking that that would like heal me. And I'm talking like working 50 hours a week at Whataburger because I had become a team leader preparing for college, trying to find scholarships because mom had already said that she couldn't afford to send me. Um, so loans and scholarships was my only option, but it wasn't until I got to college, my freshman year of college, I learned that like the traumas that we experience mentally, they actually live inside the body and they travel with us. And so they came with me to the University of Alabama and I missed my best friend's death, plus a whole bunch of just home drama, and then just me just trying to figure out myself, I attempted suicide in my freshman year of college. And that is where all of this began. So, yeah. So, one, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your vulnerability. Um, so, I want to just backtrack a little, because I think, one, you said a lot, and I think there's a lot to unpack in this. And one of the, ones, one of the things I want to unpack is this experience that I think a lot of Black kids go through and we don't talk about enough and we don't talk about how difficult it is. And it's kind of being in this, um, in between these two worlds of like the black experience and going to school with this white experience. Because I think, again, like when we talk about identity, we talk about blackness, we talk about um, the importance of loving yourself. It's very hard, especially at that age to like learn how to love yourself when you're getting these two competing thoughts of like, oh, you're Black, but also you're not Black enough. So what does that really look like for Blackness? So for you, and kind of like specifically in that kind of era of navigating those schools, what was that like for you? Or like, how did you kind of like go through that? Yeah, so I remember it was the first day of middle school and I'd walked into the gym, beginning of the school year, top of the um, top of the class period, I'm sorry. And this is where you're you're hanging out with everybody and you're waiting to go to class, waiting for the bell to ring. And I walked in and I saw, I mean, for some reason, I just looked down at feet and I saw Clark's Wallabies. I don't know if you remember those, but I saw Clark's Wallabies. I saw Hollister and Abercrombie jeans. I saw, I forget the name, but like these name brand backpacks and bags. And I'm looking around and I'm like, then I look at myself and I'm like, I've got like these thrift store clothes on. I've got this Walmart backpack on. Like, and so for me, it started with realizing um, the economic differences yeah. because I came from a place where my mom did the best she could. And for us at the time, that was thrift store or like on holidays or, you know, Christmas or whatever, it was Parisians or Gap at the time. But 
that was like a, that was like a privilege. That wasn't like an everyday thing. So like seeing these kids living that every day, I immediately thought like my identity is like tied to the type of clothes I wear or mm -hmm. the type of name brand, name brand things that I wear. And so coming home again, like for me in my neighborhood, it was more comforting because I didn't have to put on this like facade that I had to buy this or had to buy that. But you come home knowing that you fit in here only to realize you don't fit in because they tell you, why are you talking like that? Like you too white, you too proper. So really just for me, that's where it started. And then it just continued to unravel itself as I'm realizing I'm not fitting in either one of these worlds because yeah. the world that is supposed to be me essentially really who I am because I live here, like I play with y'all is telling me I'm not good enough to be here. So like if I don't have the clothes and the shoes and then who I really am here is not accepted, who am I and where do I belong in the middle of this? Yeah. So if you could kind of find like one word to describe how you felt kind of like navigating that, what would you, what word would you use? I'm gonna give you two words, okay. an identity crisis. Okay, identity crisis. All right, so we go through that, you shift, you go to high school, and then now you're at a high school that's predominantly black. Um, and you're asking yourself like, okay, I'm coming into here, I'm still don't know where I'm at, but somehow, some way, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating, I'm winning, right? Like I'm figuring out, I'm winning these accolades, I'm doing these awards, I'm doing all, um, you said like homecoming? Homecoming court. Homecoming. So I was up for homecoming queen. Yeah. So like in that moment, do you think you still were kind of going through this like identity crisis or do you feel like you was a lot more comfortable? What was that like? I think I was more comfortable because it was, it was predominantly black, but like there were still white people. So like I was used to being around white people, but I had started working at Whataburger when I was 16. Mm -hmm. So I had my own money so I could buy my own clothes things that I found my identity in. Um, but also, and I just lost my train of thought, it was very important too. Um, yeah, I just think, I think I had come into it the best way that I could, okay. but then it wasn't until I got to college that I realized I really actually don't know myself because now I'm positioned here, that's what it was. I wanna say that I, I did come into myself, but then I also struggled because when puberty hit, my body became much like my mother's. And my mother had a Coke bottle figure, if you will say. And so people started, well, boys in general started latching onto me because of what my body looked like. So then I'm finding my worth in that. So first there's this like crisis of I'm too white for the black world, but then I'm too black for the white world. Okay, well, we're going to go to the black world, come to the black world. I'm being accepted, but I'm not being accepted for who I am. I'm being accepted for what you see. Mm. And so now I'm struggling to figure out like, well, what do I see? Like, who am I beyond this? Okay. So then we shift. Then you have like a very like traumatic experience. You lose your friend. And then that's when you said like, you kind of recognize that's where that high functioning depression really came from. You feel like the, that high functioning the depression was like a part of you grieving with that or was it just kind of like the uh, accumulation of like everything going on and then trying to also at a stage of I got to get into college I got to pay for college like do you think it was like a mixture of all of those I think it was a mixture of all of it but Amber now looking back I'm gonna say mixed because on one side 
life was still going and I was a senior. So I had to figure out what I was going to do after high school. And for me, that was college. So I had to apply for scholarships. I had to apply for schools. But then on the other side, I got caught up in the work of all of that, that that became the way that I grieved. And so when I, when work slowed down and I'm like by myself and I have time to sit with my thoughts, mm. I'm like, hold on. I, I grieved, but I didn't grieve. Like now I'm really about to grieve. And if you don't have the proper tools and resources, your mind can literally make you go crazy and it can make you do things like you didn't know that you had the ability to do. So it was, it was a mixture of all of it. Um, and then getting to college, just I tell everybody like the night that I did attempt suicide, I was in a room full of people, people that wanted me there, people that in, in so many words felt like they needed me there. And I told them that I was tired and they're thinking like, oh, she's sleepy. But I'm like, no, like I'm mentally, physically, emotionally, whole body experience tired. And so I left because I was in a room full of people, but I was still alone. And that night, grief, anxiety, depression, isolation, those were the things that walked me to my door and helped me make that decision. If you know anything about those things, those things are not for you. So they're going to make you believe that you don't have purpose. They're going to make you feel hopeless. There's a culmination of all of those things and not dealing with it because therapy at the time was not a thing. Um, It wasn't talked about that was the solution I felt like I had to make. And I was just going to say- God I didn't, Thank God it didn't happen, but yeah. Yeah, and I and I was going to say too, because I was going to ask like, and I know the answer because it, it's very similar with kind of like my experiences growing up, but up until that point, did you have anybody teaching you how to heal, how to cope, how to grieve and do any of those in like a healthy way? Or was kind of like what you've seen more so of like, the keep going, the be strong, just figure it out. Uh, I'm going to say, no, I didn't have anybody. And the last statements you just made, that was what I watched my mom and dad do growing up. No, I did not know that they were just pushing through and mm-hmm. I'm sure they were depressed and like had their own things going on, but they would, they never told us. So as I'm dealing with this, I'm also thinking about, well, how did people just get through and, they keep going. Like, I know my mother had breakdowns raising, being a single mother raising three girls, but I never saw her like break down. Like I can count on one hand how many times I saw, and that's 18 years at the time. So yeah, it was just a matter of, you just keep going. But I think that's what specifically a lot of African-Americans are taught. Like you have to keep going. Like you, you don't stop. Like, and that's in essence, like what I do, Hupamone, like that's who we are which naturally just happened because of my own experiences, but we also make sure that we take time to like gain the wisdom and the knowledge that we need to keep going. Because if you keep going without it, you will self-destruct. Yeah, absolutely. And it's your point. It's, it's crazy. Cause it's like, it's really what we were taught. You know what I mean? It's this, this nature of keep going, stay strong. You'll be okay. Just push through. You got things to do, right? So we're we're always constantly focusing on what we need to do and rather than what we actually need for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this attempted suicide and then you came up and this is like what opened your healing journey. So what was what would you say was like the first step into that healing journey? Because I think a lot of people, especially those who are like struggling, people who are dealing with depression, people who 
kind of were raised in this mentality of keep going and be strong. I think one of the scariest things is that you want so much better for yourself. You don't know how to take that first step. You're scared mm-hmm. to ask how to take that first step. So for you, what was that like very, very first step to like get you on that healing journey? I'm going to say, so I'm going to speak to my journey, understanding that when it comes to mental health, everybody's journey is different. Um, So it won't look like mine. It may look like mine. But for me, the university made me go to counseling. Like that was a prerequisite of being at the university. And so it was them that actually started that journey for me. So they made all students go? hmm? They made all students go to counseling? No, like when you have an episode like that, it's just something that's kind of required. Um, So because I had attempted suicide, they appointed me a university um, appointed counselor. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first step for me. Like I kind of had no choice, but I could choose to show up if that makes sense. Like, because I knew I wanted to stay there. So I'm going to, I'm going to choose to go. But in choosing to go, I had to realize that I'm not weak, like because I'm stopping and I had a moment. I'm actually strong now that I'm going to get help. And so I think for most of us that struggle in silence, we carry the shame that we shouldn't feel this way. We carry the shame that we shouldn't not be able to keep going. But when we accept the reality that like this is actually really hard for us and we take a seat and really look at ourselves like you've got to get honest with yourself and honesty can be very scary for a lot of people because that requires you to be accountable to you and if you've never had it growing up if you never saw it what is accountability what is authenticity what is vulnerability but for me it was them and then deciding like because i mean i got rolled out on a stretcher and like from what i can remember everybody in my dorm room was in the hallway watching this and so coupled with my own mental health stuff but then seeing all these people seeing me, what immediately came to mind was they're going to think I'm some crazy suicidal girl, which I was suicidal, but I wasn't crazy. I was hurting. Mm -hmm. And so even with that, I had to make a decision when I walked back on this campus, like people are going to have their perceptions of what happened, but they don't know. And it's not on them to help me figure it out. It's on me to figure it out. And then trust that as I say yes on this journey, the right people will come alongside me and walk with me. But we've got to get honest with ourselves first. We've got to get honest. What what was that process like for you to be honest with yourself? Because that, especially kind of like the outside looking in, I I could see like a lot of people, I I could even say from my own experiences when there's a lot going on, like probably one of my biggest worries is like, oh man, if I open up, if I talk to this person, uh, what are they going to think, right? And I think that that's a huge, huge hurdle for so many different people parents, children, a minister, like no matter, kind of like, how did you make peace with that? Or how did you get honest with yourself dealing with that? Yeah, I go back to, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I get, now I will say who I am today, because I still struggle to, I don't have suicidal thoughts, but like I have moments of sadness and where anxiety tries to creep up. Um, so I'll speak to today. Mm-hmm. Um, I journal a lot. I probably go through like four journals in a year. And in that journal, so practically speaking, if someone does not feel comfortable and does not feel safe talking to some someone or their peers or a therapist or whatever the case may be, I'd say 
start with journaling because it's only you, your pen and your paper, and you're able to see your emotions on paper. And then from there, prayerfully and hopefully, you'll start to see like, as you look at your emotions and your, you're really your whole self. Cause I think there's a mind body connection to all of this. When you look at your whole self, it'll give you the opportunity to say, Hey, like I can step out and go get help or Hey, I can actually call someone. But again, it's just this willingness. Like, and some people don't get it on the first try, which is why I think a lot of people do resort in that. Like I, I was one of those people and I can't tell you how I did, how it didn't work. Like it just didn't work. But it's because I felt like no one's going to listen to me. But at some point, you've got to get to that place of it's either do or die. And in understanding that, it comes with a newfound sense of hope and purpose. But again, you got to find that. And that begins with being honest with yourself. So yeah. when you be honest with yourself and tell yourself the truth first, I think then it'll be easier to talk to someone else. But I, the one thing that I absolutely love that you said, too, is that sometimes it doesn't happen in the first try. So I think we, we put all our eggs in that basket and then that that we get our hopes up. And then the minute that we try to talk to somebody and they might not even recognize like what we need or we don't talk to the right people or so many other like obstacles that kind of gets in the way. That can be such a like defeating feeling that it, it pushes you towards isolation even more. And I think like mm -hmm. there's a lot of power in understanding that it, it's sometimes it's a, a constant struggle of trying and trying and trying, but recognizing that like that success is not, it's not necessary. Like we have to change how we measure success you mm -hmm. know, sometimes, because I think sometimes we put it all in or all nothing when there's mm -hmm. a whole lot of gray area with success, especially when it comes to healing, expressing ourselves and trying to find uh, move on to those next steps of doing better. So with that, so you're in therapy, your healing journey is beginning. What was therapy like for you? <laughs> well, my therapist at the time was an older white man. And so mm. that in itself was like mm. interesting for me because I knew that you could help me, but like, I didn't, I didn't see if, I didn't think you would understand me because, and I've had to deal with this on my own, but like, maybe he could have, and maybe just my own experiences in life make me feel like, oh, you don't understand my upbringing. You don't understand my struggles. But even with him, like I had to look past that. Like, I don't care if you understand or not, like I need to get this out. And so I'm going to tell you for, for me, not for you. And what you do with this information, how you help me, I'm going to take the take the meat and spit out the bones. I'm going to take what I know works for me and what doesn't. So our sessions, I want to say I only had like three sessions with him. Mm -hmm. And then I found my own counselor. Hey. And that process, that process became, it became more safe um, because I knew it's not, I won't even say I knew, like, I just felt more safe. Like, I felt like I could really just talk about it. But even in therapy, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you, like, life didn't stop. Life kept lifing. And so I had to start learning strategies that would help me overcome the hurdles of life while I'm trying to get help with the, hurt, the hurdles of my own life, like the things that are actually trying to trip me up. But yeah, therapy then was just, I say that I wasn't, 
I was invested, but I wasn't as invested as I am now because I was in my early 20s and I was very involved on campus and I was a nursing major and applied to nursing school for three times and then was denied and finally realized this is not where I'm supposed to be going. So ended up in the social work world. So even that, like I always tell people college for me was not about the degree I would gain. It was more about who I was becoming. And that's in essence like how all this started. But if you want me to speak to therapy today, I can tell you I'm a therapist that's in therapy. So if you're listening and you're like on the fence, you better go because this therapist is in therapy. Talk your talk. (laughs) Yes, even therapists need therapy. Come on now. Come on now. Yeah. I love it. So real quick, because I think like what you said, especially when we're dealing with like looking for counselors, it sometimes the, the counselors in which you find are not the ones for you. So then you have to kind of relocate, look for a different person. For you specifically, like what were you looking for? Like what mattered to you in a counselor? Because I think sometimes, again, like we tell people go to therapy, right? But we don't tell people how to find therapy or how to even locate a counselor or what should be important, what shouldn't be important. So for you, like what was important? So people can almost get an idea of like some of the ways that in which people look for different therapists. Yeah. Um, so for me, I knew that I had a lot of childhood trauma. Um, I'm a middle child. And so growing up, they were very mean to me. But some somewhere along the lines, I became like, before I even got into therapy, I became the therapist of the family. And so people would call on me. So I naturally started caring everybody's problems. So I also knew that I needed a therapist that would help me understand the importance of not doing that. Um, I needed to deal with the obvious, my suicidal ideations. I needed to deal with the the depression, the anxiety, and then the grief from my best friend. And so when I, like I said, the university made me go to this counselor, so I kind of didn't have a choice. But when I had a choice, I know now there's like probably databases or websites where you can find that, like identify your issues and then Align, line those issues up with what these therapists are offering. And don't just, like you said earlier, putting all your eggs in one basket, like make a list of three or four and give them all a try. Like, because therapy is not for the therapist. Therapy is for you. It's tailor-made for your needs. And if you're not getting that and, and feeding your body mentally and emotionally what it needs, you're not gonna, you're gonna give up on therapy. You're gonna think it doesn't work, but you've got to know that this is important to you because you you want to live like and you have a sense of purpose. And I think everybody on this earth has a sense of purpose. I think all of us were born pure in heart, but life just happened. And so you've got to be able to identify what your needs are and be OK with trial and error because you won't get it right. I'm not going to say you won't. Some people don't get it right the first time. Some do. But if you don't get it right the first time, like you said, I don't want you to give up on it because there is hope. You just got to be willing to stay steadfast to find it. Yeah, no, I love that. I absolutely love that. So to like switch gears, right? Mm-hmm. Go through it. You're in this healing process. You're in college. As we all know, college can be incredibly ghetto. You go to college <laughs> and you're like, yo, I got this big dream. I want to do this. And then life, be life and it takes us a different way. How did you pivot, right? So you wanted to initially get into nursing and now you're a social worker and now you're a therapist. So like, how did this pivot happen for you? It wasn't my choice. Mm. Well, 
I'm telling you everything that <laughs> you have heard me say that I'm doing, I did not choose this life. Um, so just quickly, I wanted to be a nurse, neonatal specifically, ever since I was in the third grade, because I was born with a cyst on my right lung, and I had to have half of my cyst on my right lung removed. So I only have one and a half lungs. Wow. And when my mom told me that story, I did a poem in third grade, and I can remember this day like it was yesterday. I was standing on the stage, and I had wrote this poem called This Girl. I wish I could find it. But when I finished, and basically the, the poem was just about my experience, and I made the the character unknown, and then by the end of the poem, they knew it was me. There was not a dry eye in the room. And so I was in the third grade when I knew that, like, I was called to, like, some form of writing. But as life went on, I just kind of, like, never really played with the idea, and I stuck to nursing, in part, too, because my sister is a nurse. Well, she's now a nurse practitioner, but when you're new to college and stuff, like you're, you're going to follow the footsteps of people that are close to you that have been there. And so I thought that that was the only way to get financially savvy and say, well, because I didn't grow up with that. And so I'm watching my sister be successful at it. It's like, okay, let's do this. And so I had her walk with me through that entire process. I had well over the GPA to get into the nursing school. I'm talking about, there were friends of mine that had significantly lower GPAs that got in the program over me. And so after my second denial at Alabama, I was like, you know what, let me just change schools. I'll go to a school near home. They told me that I was gonna get a scholarship because my GPA was so high. And there were other things that they could set me up with because I was well over the expectation. I got um, a letter in the mail that said I had been denied. And so I'm like, okay, this is the third denial. Like what is going on? So I'm like, okay, let me just stay at Alabama and I'm going to apply again. I applied again and I got denied. So at this point, I'm like still healing. Also had just gotten out of like a very bad relationship. And it was my first relation, like real relationship. So it really marked me. So being in between a broken heart and healing, shame, because it was very, it was very public. Um, the breakup was, and then also trying to just figure out what I'm about to do with my life. I had to use my tools in therapy and I had to just sit still. And one of the things I had to do for myself is I had to surrender. And I had to surrender to my higher power. I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. So I had to surrender, surrender my my will and my life to that. So like, okay, God, what do you want this to look like? And I don't know where like, I went to this um, academic advisor and she said, I want you to take the strong inventory test. So I took the test and it's just like, a, am sure you know, like this little, outline that'll help you determine like what paths are good for you and what aren't. Well, the number one path was nursing. And so I'm looking at this paper like, but that's not what these people are saying. The second one was social work. And I think the last one was like a woman in business or something. So I was like, okay, well, I don't want to do social work because one, they don't make no money. Two, they take all these people kids. And these are the things that I was told growing up. So this is why yeah. I'm thinking this is what it is. So end up just saying, okay, let me just go visit the school of social work visited the School of Social Work. It was like the stars online that day. They mm -hmm. told me because my GPA was so high, they could offer me scholarships. So the same thing the nursing school told me was just what I'm realizing is where I'm supposed to be. Um, so I switched my major, <laughs> but the first semester or second semester of being there, I had to take like this writing thing. So remember I told you like, I knew I could write, but I had like mm -hmm. kind of put it down. Well, I'm like the only one in the class that fails this thing how am I feeling this thing when this is like my gift? 
I fail it, it sets me back a year to graduate because the next time they offer to take, they offer the class is a year from then. So now I'm like, okay, I've been obedient. I've said yes. And there's still trials and tribulation. But again, that's life. Like it comes with its highs and its lows and you've got to figure out how to balance it. But anyways, a long story short, changing major social work, crazy things happen. They sent me to Mexico for two weeks to study. I ended up going to the Dominican Republic twice in the same year to do mission work. And need I remind you, this is my first time on a plane, like never been on a plane until these two experiences. And then thereafter, um, you know, finally graduated. And then I graduated and I was like, I'm going to not go to corporate. I'm going to dismiss corporate and I'm going to go to the Dominican Republic. And I moved out there for six months to just figure out what my life was going to look like. Ended up writing a book and six months out there being marked and learning. There's so much more to me that I didn't know. Being challenged culturally. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying where they say like, look at all those Mexicans packed in the back of the truck. Well, growing up here in that, like, I thought it was like funny because I'm young and I'm not aware of life, but then being immersed in the culture, mm-hmm. like that's a way of life. And just because it looks different from the way I live does not mean it's okay to disrespect. And so yeah, this whole social work journey has just, you know, ran it, done, done what it does. Yeah, you know what I like, I'm, I love about your story is that it's like, you, it's like a testimony to like nothing good comes easy. But at the mm. same time, that like, especially when you persevere, when you keep going, when you take the time, the necessary time to heal, to work on yourself and surrender to, what's going on and kind of letting go of those perceptions of what you tell yourself that beautiful things can happen because it's like as you're talking I'm hearing all these all these obstacles and all these setbacks that for a lot of people would be defeating or would for them um would want them to give up or force them to give up and like each setback you take it you strive with it you heal from it and then you find a way to keep going and then like the door opens up into something even more amazing and beautiful. Cause it's for, like, even like when you were talking about like, yeah, so I, this first test and I'm, in my mind, I'm a gifted writer and I failed it. You know what I mean? I failed it. I know a lot of people who like that setback in itself would be like, social work is not for me. Can't even yeah. do it. And then you you continue to press bear, fast forward, you're in Mexico and in the DR writing a book. And it's like, yo, it's oh, just so you know, it's like beautiful just to hear something like that. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of times, like, we forget that the the possibilities are truly endless for us. And like in those moments with the rejection and with the, like the stops, the heartbreaks and all that, in those moments, we often tell ourselves like, there's nothing for us. There's nothing else for us. Mm-hmm. If we keep going. If we keep writing our own story then something beautiful can still yeah. come out of it. So, I, yeah, I just, I absolutely, absolutely love your story. It's, like, amazing. I had been denied. I wrote the book, though. Let's let's not forget, I wrote the book. And then I came home to pitch it, and this publisher accepted it. And they told me to send them my one sheet, because I'd driven to North Carolina to pitch it. And they told me that they wanted it. And I came home, and I did what they said. And 24 hours later, they said, oh, we don't want your book anymore. And mm-hmm. so that stung because I'm like okay what is the deal with this whole writing thing like I've been humbled okay I know that I can't do all this on my own and that there's room for growth but why does this keep happening and so then with that denial that rejection 
they often say like rejection is just redirection. It redirected me to my honest self because transparently, like I was still in this place and this is 2018 accepting all of my story. Mm. And what I mean by accepting it, I'm saying being okay with vulnerably sharing my story to the world. Mm. It's one thing for me and my people to know about it, but for the world, that's like, nah, because you know, everybody has their opinions and can put their mouth on everything. Just this whole freedom of speech thing. So after that, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do it. And my editor said, the reason why nothing is working out with this book is because you're trying to write it from a fictional standpoint. So I had written my story, but I gave it different characters and it was a whole different person, but it wasn't that person. And so I changed everything. I accepted it, went to Tennessee that year and wrote, rewrote the entire book on a couch in one week. After that, everything took off. Wow. Yeah. That, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, shout out to your editor, right? Because that is. Oh, for sure. She gave me heart surgery. Yeah. How okay, so you're writing this, right? And you're of course writing it, you're reliving a lot of these experiences and you're thinking about it. And then in the next breath, it's like the world is gonna see this. Like people have access to being able to read this. How did you build the confidence in yourself to be comfortable with that, right? And be comfortable with knowing that this is anybody can read this, anybody has access to that. Especially in this world, too, where social media, you know. The age of social media. (laughs) You know, people people get to to Instagram and the TikTok and and it's Mm -hmm. viral. So, like, how how did you make peace with that? I think it's two things. One, I wanted to kill myself. It don't get no worse than that. So, because I'm alive, I know that it's bigger than me. And if just one person has been touched, which many have been touched, but if one was touched and a thousand didn't like it, I did what I was supposed to do. That's one life saved. The other side of it is people's perceptions are people's perceptions. I know what I meant when I wrote what I wrote. How you take it is on you. And when I got to that point, I realized I was free from people. But again, I believe I attribute that to all of the work I had done previously. Mm. Now we're on the other side where it's out and we got to deal with opportunities like this because (laughs) I've got to talk about it. But I think you just got to, you've got to make up in your mind it's a choice. And I made up in my mind that it couldn't get no worse than me wanting to kill myself. And people are going to be people, good or bad. Yeah. How How does that like essentially... Cause I know like it's one thing for like somebody who you like don't know, you don't have a personal connection with, but how is it, especially like the opinions of like friends or like people who kind of indie stories, is that still kind of like a, a process of learning? Cause I think for myself, right. I, I have big dreams. I have a lot of things that I want to do, especially like even doing this podcast is a huge step of courage. Right. But there's all, thank you. Thank you. But like, for me, there's always this kind of fear of, the more open I am, the more vulnerable, the more we talk about like serious issues, different issues or whatnot. I think it's not necessarily outside people I'm worried about, but it's more so like the inside circle of like the friends, the family, what are they gonna think? How are they gonna feel? Is this gonna change the dynamic of our relationships, friendships, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of like, how do you 
what advice would you give me to kind of like cope with that? Because I think especially now that I'm seeing that in order to get to where I want to be, I have to put myself out in those positions of being vulnerable and being open. How, like, what advice would you give me to like coping and navigating that? Because that that is definitely scary for sure. And so I'm listening to you and your heart is in a really pure place. And when you set your intentions to do things good, mm -hmm. only good can come from it. So that's just what I want to tell you from start. Like you're going to be good because your heart is good. Um, I know for me personally, when I wrote the book, so I changed, I changed names. I asked everybody, you know, what do you want your name to be? And they gave me a name. In addition to that, I let them read their portion. And if there was anything they felt like needed to be omitted, I omitted it. Funny thing, nobody omitted anything. The only thing they did was give me a different name. And it was because they also knew how important it was to get out. Um, I'll tell you someone I was very shocked at. I was shocked that my dad was going to receive it the way that he did. He finished it on a plane ride to California. And when the plane landed, he called me and he said, what do I need to do to help you get this out? And so for me, it helped me see that sometimes the way I think it's going to go it actually doesn't go that way. And so even for you right now, like I said, only good can come from what you're doing because you're not doing this with ill intentions. And the people that know you and really know you and see you for you, they're going to know that as well. So just do it. Mm. Just do it. Uh, you want to make me cry. Stop. Stop. <laughs> it's too early to cry. No, I appreciate, I appreciate that. And I think that's like, that's where I'm really trying to like get to myself. It's funny because last night, um, I'm working on this kind of like career planning because I signed up for like this program and it's, it has you break down like, oh, what, like the method in which the lady was telling us is like, start with your end goal and then work all the way. So mm. that when you start from your end goal, you'll always know where you want to end up and how you want to finish. And that is um, <laughs> it's Young in the Arts. It's a program for people who want to get into the entertainment industry. Shout out to uh -huh. Tiffany Young. If you're watching this, you are amazing. Um, but yeah, she was like, yo, you have to start with your angle because the angle is going to essentially help you figure out, especially during those moments where you like want to give up. Um, it'll help push you to get into those levels. Mm. So it's funny. So I'm on um, Discord with a couple of my homies. And I, from, for the longest, if anybody knows me, you know, like, talk show host for me is like the dream. Late night TV, I want to be a talk show host. And I was telling my friends, I was like, yeah, um, I think my end goal is this late night television. And then my friend was like, think bigger. Like, that's too mm. small. I was like, oh. So now I'm in my mind, I'm thinking all these ideas, all these concepts. And yeah, I, I want to. And I know I will at some point like achieve all these things, but I think for me it's like that first step of building that confidence of just like putting myself out there. So I appreciate what you say because it's like sometimes I forget that I do have like these good intentions and I do want to make it. And I'm not out here to like get anybody. If anything, I want to power everybody on the way. Um, but sometimes like I hold myself back from being yeah. able to do those things. I think people like you. And I'm going to just humbly put myself in there with you. People like us with good intentions and we don't want anything from it. We'll always win because I wrote this book literally for one person. I didn't expect, like, I want you to hear me and hear me well. 
I didn't choose anything that you see. You talk about the greatness, the research and all that. I didn't choose this. All glory to God, but I did not choose this. And so because I didn't, I know that only good can continue to come from it because it's not about me. It's bigger than me. And so what you're doing is bigger than you. Like shout out to the 20,000 that you're going to impact in the first year of all of this. It's coming. It's going to happen for you. No, I appreciate that. For real. Um, Kind of with that, because I, I, I deal with this a lot. Um, in the, in the same way, like I'm in a PhD program right now and I feel like I didn't necessarily, ch- I didn't choose it. I chose it, but I didn't choose it. Life took me on a way and based on circumstances, I had to make choices to be here. Um, but with that being said, like when I reflect on a lot of my life, I think about that a lot, right? Like, oh, I didn't choose this, but I'm in these positions. And I think for the longest, I had regret. And a lot of that kind of almost like resentment towards myself of not making better decisions or not doing things better. And I'm just curious, like, how have you navigated regret, if if any, kind of like throughout your journey? Because I think sometimes, like when you look back and you look at some of the decisions you make, it's always this kind of like regret, remorse, frustration. So essentially, like, how did you deal with that? And how did you forgive yourself if you did yeah, um, that's so funny because last year I came up on, well, this year I came up on two years in therapy, but late last year, early this year, I had finished my EMDR. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's eye desensitization, um, light therapy and thing. It's a form of just therapy. And it, for me, it helped me recall things that were hidden in my mind that were actually the root to what I was experiencing. And so one of the phrases in the sequence that I had made was that I am destructible. I am broken. And that's because for so long, I really thought like, I'm too broken that nothing in good in life can happen for me. And just that, that poverty mindset. And so we had, we were doing the secret, the sequence and the light was going back and forth. And like, I started recalling all of these memories, all of these memories But when I said that I'm broken, I can't forgive myself, essentially, it was because of things that people did to me. And by the end of the sequence, we learned that it wasn't those people that did it to me. It was me standing in my own way. And so my advice to you, I didn't didn't up until recently stop having regrets because if I really look back at my life, everything I just explained to you, which is not even everything that I've gone through. But the things that I've explained to you, those are the things that led me to being on this podcast with you today. Like I wouldn't be here if those things hadn't happened. And so now I can look back at them because I'm out of my own way and because I'm forgiving myself. And I can see that maybe I did want that, but I think I wanted it in a way that I didn't know was actually good for me. Because if it was good for me, essentially I would have it would have worked out. Or if it was a part of my plan or part of my life's plan, it would have worked out. But because I didn't, this is where I am. So I would say for you, really look at what those experiences were. I don't know what these experiences were, but look at them. And then just really identify the good that came from them and go back to that that five-year plan or the, the big picture that you're talking about at the end. Like, would that have suited you for where you're trying to go? And if it's not, then you've got to kick imposter syndrome out because you got things to do, sir. No, that's real. That's real. And Amber, I just want to say again, I, I said this earlier. I said this before. I said this yesterday. I'll say that. I'll keep saying this. Yo, thank you so much 
for even like giving me the opportunity to interview you, to talk to you, for you to like be so vulnerable, be so open to share your story. Um, you again, I, I said this before, you are incredibly dope, amazing, and such such a heaven sent angel on this planet for real like the work that you're doing i can only imagine the impact that you have on the kids that you work with the people that you work with i know from jasmine speaking you up um you are amazing and funny story well it's not funny but it's a real story right so we were i met you at junior's um program mm -hmm. children but i met you in passing so i heard like glimpses of your story but I didn't get to hear the full one because I had to go work on like my breakout session, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to chop it up with you then, but the whole day just kept on going, going forward, right? You come to the University of Kentucky. You are a keynote speaker. Yes, people, if you're listening, keynote speaker. I was supposed to go to that, but see the way my sleep schedule works. If everybody knows, I'm a night owl. I sleep through the morning. I miss the session. So I get to campus and I'm hoping that you got the afternoon one. I find out you had the morning one. We're going to talk about that later. But, right, so I'm like, yo, did I miss Amber? Everybody's like, yes, you missed it. I'm like, oh, no. I promise you, every girl that was in attendance that I talked to, they were like, yo, she was amazing. Like, wow. I mean, like, usually, like, sometimes you could tell with college students, when they were like, yeah, yeah, it was cool. They was like, no. Yo, her story, mm -hmm. her testimony was amazing. She's really dope. As they were walking off, after they were telling me how amazing you were, they continued to talk about how amazing you were and some of the things that you were saying with your story. So I want you to know, like, you have a real impact. You are amazing. And I'm so thankful to have you on this interview. You're literally making me cry right now. So we're <laughs> just going to stop, okay? <laughs> Thank you. No problem. No problem. Yeah, no, you, you're, you're incredible. Um, thank you all for listening. Everybody, please. Right now, if you're listening, go follow Amber. Amber, what is all your social medias? Your how can people get to you? Plug the book, plug everything, please. <laughs> so you can get Hoopamone, that's the name of my book, um, on Amazon. I don't think some of you all are in Alabama, but if you are in Alabama, you can get it at um the Sanctuary and the Promenade. You can <clears throat> excuse me, you can get it at the Birmingham Public Library, Pelham Public Library many, many more bookstores soon to come because I am having to do all of the legwork. Um, and then, like I said, those aren't convenient for you. Amazon, I don't really have any on my website right now, but I will soon. So www.amberinunderwood.com and then follow me on Instagram at Amber in Underwood. So, and I'm yeah. just going to plug all those into um, the description so they can find you. Um, Amber, appreciate you. Thank you all for tuning in, listening. Peace and love, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, night, morning, whatever you listen to. Just have, just be great.